We had just finished the rehearsal dinner <clears throat> for my daughter Alicia and my future son-in-law Mark for their wedding, and uh, some people were bringing some items down from the dinner, and we were putting them in the kitchen back in another part of the building. As they started to walk in the kitchen, they heard water sloshing underneath your feet. That's never a good sign. Uh, we did not realize it had been raining heavily for the last hour and a half outside. And the rain had been coming down off the hillside across the 897 here between the two buildings, between the main building and the church building, and was running like a river down past the kitchen. You're going to see some video footage of it on the screen behind me as I'm talking. Water was starting to pour into the kitchen. By this time, by the time we got in there, there was about two inches of water inside the kitchen. And as we turned the lights on, we discovered the gym was a third full of water. As I went outside, I saw this river of water that was just cascading. You can see it there on the video. This just river of water that was probably about 10 feet wide, running past the kitchen door, running into the kitchen the night before the biggest day of my daughter's life. And uh, uh, I felt incredibly, incredibly powerless. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't stop the water. So whenever I don't know what to do, I call for help. That's kind of my MO. I don't try to fix it myself. I'm not a fixer. I call for help. So I called the staff, and, and I think Roddy was available. He came over, and our cleaning team leader, Gail, she knew that we've had this problem before, so she checks on things, and she brought her husband, Tom, over, and discovered my father-in-law was MacGyver in another life. My, my son's father uh, was MacGyver in another life as he found some boards and created a dam and dammed it up and got the water going a different direction. And, and uh, the problem could have been very, very worse. But I felt incredibly helpless. I felt overwhelmingly powerless. And I don't know if you've experienced life being out of control when things like that happen, but it's a hard, hard place to be. It's a hard place to be. Maybe you've had a coworker that's treating you poorly and you've spoken to them about it, you've confronted them about it, you've, you've done the things that you need to do, but they just won't stop and you feel powerless. Maybe you received some bad news from the doctor about your health and in spite of you eating properly and not eating the things you shouldn't eat and eating the things you should eat, you're still hit with this health issue and you feel powerless. You wanted the abuse to stop. You had done anything for it to stop. It just wouldn't stop. And you felt powerless. You love your spouse and you want to spend the rest of your days with them, but they don't want to spend their days with you and you don't know what to do and you feel powerless. Your parents can't seem to get along and even though you try not to rock the boat and you try to keep them both happy, it doesn't look like the marriage is going to survive and you feel powerless. You've been a model employee. You've gone the extra mile. You've come in early. You've stayed late. And yet when the next merger showed up and the next round of layoffs came, you just felt powerless. You know the struggles inside and you've been to counseling. And you sought freedom from your past and you want the nightmares to end and you don't want to be controlled by this pain from your story, but you just feel powerless. You've sought to follow Christ and to honor Him with your life and to lead your family to do the same. And yet, one of your sons or one of your daughters decides they're not sure they want to make your faith their own. And in spite of all your prayers, you feel powerless. No one likes to feel powerless. No one likes to feel helpless. There's probably other emotions, but those 
are some of the toughest ones for me. And what do you do when this happens? What do you do when this happens? We tend to go one of two routes. Um, some of us turn inward. We blame ourselves. We say, what could I have done differently? What should I have done? We demean ourselves. We beat ourselves up. We're full of self-loathing. Others, and this is my MO, we just put our head down and try harder. Um, we work harder. We think harder. We research harder. We Google harder. We go to more counselors. We do everything we can do to try to find a solution to this problem that we feel helpless to do anything about. As we continue our journey in our series entitled Simply Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, this morning we're going to look at a subject, this subject of power and powerlessness, and we're going to explore a place where most of us hate to be, but the place where Jesus most likes to show up in our lives. We're going to look at the place that most of us hate to be, and yet the place where Jesus most shows up in our lives. The book of Mark is a real-life account of an eyewitness, Peter, who is a first-hand observer of the events of the life of Jesus. And he recorded these events in a condensed, condensed, focused book called Mark, written by a guy by the name of Mark. Not a lot of extensive dialogue, not a lot of theological debate, but these snapshots over and over and over again of these things that happened in the life of Jesus that he wants us to look at, to learn from, and to follow. If you hear this last week, I talked about the fact that following Jesus is not about rules, it's about relationships. And if you weren't here with us, I hope you have a chance to listen online um, and catch up and be able to, uh, to hear that message from last week. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seat rack in front of you or you can follow along on your phone, uh, follow along online. Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to jump in this morning. And in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is doing some teaching. He's doing some teaching, and um, crowds were following him. We discovered that the, the following is getting bigger and bigger, and as the crowds start to follow him, he's trying to figure out, how do I communicate to the crowd? And so what he does is he just finds a boat, um, steps in the boat, borrows a boat, pushes it back off so his voice would project likely on the hillside to all the people who are along the shore's edge, is what it says in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And he taught them in parables. Parables are stories, stories, stories that don't immediately have an, a meaning, but if you catch the point, you're like, oh, 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 that didn't feel very good. That's kind of what a parable does, you know, it kind of blindsides you. You don't know what's coming, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that was meant for me. And that's what Jesus did when he taught in parables. And remember, Jesus was teaching a different way of faith. Not the way the religious leaders were looking at, not what they were considering. He was looking at a different way of faith, a different way of following, following Jesus. He was talking about the kingdom of God and inviting people into that, not just to obey a set of rules. He wasn't saying, I just want you to add Jesus to your life. I just want you to add a little slice of Jesus, kind of fit it in there, slot it in there on Sunday morning, you know, about an hour, we'll only keep it to an hour. You can slot Jesus in there. No, that's not what he was suggesting. He said, I want following Jesus to be something that is radically different, where he's at the center of your life and he affects every single part of your life. That's what he was suggesting. Not just a slice, but every single part of your life. So he spent the entire day teaching many parables, down in verse 33, 
as much as they could understand. And then he took his followers away because they were still scratching their head. They're like, Jesus, we don't get it. Can you explain? He's like, all right, guys, come on. Let's go over here. We'll huddle a little bit. I'll make some sense. It's been a long day, pretty demanding. Can we get away somewhere we can get some R&R? And so they say, yes, let's do that. So that evening he said to his disciples, let's go the other side. Now they were on the Sea of Galilee, um, not really a sea, more like a big lake, eight miles wide, 12 miles long. You could see from one side to the other when it's, when it's a clear day. Um, there's some di- unique distinctives about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee sits 800 feet below sea level. And all around the Sea of Galilee is a range of mountains that's about 1,500 feet, all the way to the Golan Heights, which is about 2,500 feet. So you almost have a half-mile difference from the top of the mountains to the sea level. And so that's where Jesus was with his followers. And his followers were a bunch of fishermen. So they knew boats. That was their world. They lived in boats. Every night they were in boats, out of boats, cleaning boats, fixing boats. They knew boats. You know, it's like those of you around that hunt. A lot of you hunt. You know the woods. I don't know the woods. I walk on trails. That's all I do. Um, but you guys know the woods that do this. And these are fishermen. They knew this. And they said, let's go to the other side. And it wasn't just them. There was others. There was other boats. So it wasn't like it was a dangerous thing. There was other people going to the other side. And, and they thought, maybe we'll get to the other side. We'll get a little bit of time to take a break and have a pause and try to explain some things that are in these stories that he was telling. But in the middle of that, a storm popped up. It's described as a furious squall. So you know what happened when you have warm desert air, hot desert air coming onto the water, and you have cold air from the mountains coming down, and they collide? Anybody know what happens when the hot air and the cold air collides? What do you end up with? Anybody? Thunderstorm. You can say it louder. Thunderstorms. Thunderstorms. That's what happens. That's what a furious squall is. It's a massive thunderstorm. But this was bigger than anything they had ever experienced. Because it says in the end of the text that the water was coming over the top edge of the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. I mean, these were massive swales that they were experiencing. The water was coming over the top of the boat and you were like, I don't know. This is really, really bad. This is really, really bad. These were experienced fishermen, but they were powerless. They were powerless. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus was taking a nap. He was taking a nap. Now, now some of you kind of get this, you know. Some of you, if there's a train going through right outside your bedroom door, you're taking a nap. You're, you're out, you know. You're out for the count. You don't even know it's there, you know. Kids, dog, you know, fire engines, I, I'm out, you know. They, you, so you get it. You know, Jesus has had a long day. He's been out ministering, teaching. Imagine you're yourself at the end of a very long 12, 14 hour demanding day, and the eyelids are getting a little heavy. You know, kids have been hanging on your legs all day long. You know, you've got customers squawking at you, you've got a boss hounding you about deadlines, you've got employees, you know, not performing. You're at the end of a long, this is where he was. Why is Jesus sleeping? Maybe he's just exhausted. Maybe he's just exhausted. Maybe he knew what was going to happen. Maybe he had confidence in God that was so high that it allowed him to sleep, but we don't really know. We don't, all we know is there was a storm going on around him, and Jesus is out for the count. He's just snoozing. I kind of wondered this. Um, you know, maybe they thought, oh, he's a fisherman. He can't really. He's a carpenter. He can't really help us. You know? 
It's like those of you that hunt, you know, you took me out in the woods. You wouldn't ask me for direct. John's a pastor. He can't help us get out of the woods, you know. Um, maybe that's why they didn't ask him. Um, but in the midst of the crisis, they finally woke him up. And notice what they said when they woke him up. They said, teacher, don't you care if we drowned? I'm kind of intrigued by this. It has a little sarcasm to it. A little sarcasm. They didn't say, Jesus, we need your help. Listen, we've all, we're all on an oar. We need one more oar. And if we get one more person or one more, we think we might be able to get past this thing. It's, the waves are coming over. We need you to bail. Okay, we're all on the oars. We need you to bail. Just keep bailing because the water's coming over the edge. They could have asked him all kinds of things. They didn't ask him any of that stuff. They just said, are you going to let us die? Are you going to let us drown? And do you know what's underneath of sarcasm? Anybody know? Anger. Anger's underneath of sarcasm. People are very sarcastic. They're very angry people. Um, what were the disciples angry about? What were they angry about? I mean, they had seen Jesus heal people. They had seen Jesus take care of people. They had seen Jesus solve people for total strangers. He helped all these other people. These disciples, they gave up everything to follow him. They said, we're signing up. We're walking away from it all. The family business, the inheritance, we're walking away from it all. And we're following you. And now they're at a life crisis. And where's Jesus? He's asleep. He's asleep. And they're pissed. There we are. I mean, you come to church, you give faithfully, you serve, and you've been doing this for years, and this crisis hits. And where's Jesus? Nowhere to be found. I'm praying, I don't hear anything. No movement. No movement. There's some anger there. There's some anger there. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. I always pay attention to what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't correct the disciples. He doesn't say to them, all right, guys, let's have a little conversation about what's going on underneath the water line here. You know, he doesn't do that. You know? He doesn't say, okay, guys, there's, I, I, let me, there's more to this story. I got it under control. You know, dads, we do this, right? I got it under control. Calm down, everybody. You know, it's going to be, you know, try to calm the ship, you know, when it's crazy. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't try to answer their question. He doesn't try to calm them down. None of it. What does he do? He gets up, rebukes the wind. I don't know how you rebuke the wind. I really don't know how you rebuke wind. I really have no idea. You know, just say, stop! You know, is that, is that how you rebuke the wind? Some of you are snoozing, now you're awake. It's good. You know. I, I don't know. I don't know how you rebuke wind. He says to the waves, quiet, be still. But they listened. The wind died down and it was completely calm. This is what it looked like. It wasn't the waves, you know, and they get calmer. This is what it looked like. It was still. I mean, it went from this to this in a heartbeat, in a word. And that's what God can do. Jesus can calm the storm around you. He's capable of doing that. I don't know about you, but I could see myself, 
I've been through storms in my life. I think probably most of us would admit we have, right? You've been in a storm. It's crazy all around. You don't know how you're going to make it out of it, right? And sometimes, sometimes, Jesus speaks, God shows up, and it's still. And you're like, I don't know how that just happened. I don't know where that call came from for that job that's better than anything I ever dreamed of. I don't know what prompted this love, this family member that I love, who I've been praying for for years to out of the blue call me and say, hey, that church you're always telling me about, I want to come with you. And can I come with you? And they, they, they follow Jesus. They go, I don't know how that happened. He just showed up and he just happened. And that's what Jesus can do. He can calm the storm around you. But he doesn't always do that, does he? That's not a rhetorical question. Does Jesus always calm the storm in your life? Yes or no? No. No. Five years ago, six years ago, two members of our congregation diagnosed with the same kind of cancer. One was sitting here in the first service, and one's in heaven with Jesus. One, he calmed the storm, and one, he didn't. Sometimes he doesn't calm the storms. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that at all. I want a God that I can control, that I can predict, that I can say, this is what I need, and you do this, and the outcome produces what I need. That's the kind of God I want. But that's not who Jesus is. Because sometimes there's more than just the storm around us. There's more than the storm around us. Because Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, he says, why are you so afraid, guys? Well, duh, duh. We're about ready to die, Jesus, you know? Kind of obvious. And then he says, do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? They had seen him cast out demons, heal the sick, um, life-threatening, heal the life-threatening disease of leprosy, um, raise, from the, the, raise up the paralyzed man. He had power over disease, over this world, about the religious rulers. He had power over everything. But their faith was still weak. Their faith was still weak. But Mark records something else. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, they were terrified. They were terrified. So the, so the word afraid is like this much fear. Okay? That's what afraid is. This is terrified. That is the highest level of fear we know is terror. It's gut-wrenching. It scare you worse than any Halloween movie and shake you to your core. There was something going on inside. The storm was done. It was gone. It was over. But there was something going on in the inside. They were terrified. What was this terror? They said, who is this? They had been following him. They knew he was Jesus from Nazareth. They knew he was the carpenter's son. 
But, but who is this? Who has this kind of power? And when I look at their response, I'm, I'm very confused because if I was in a boat and the boat was about to sink and someone rescued me, I'd be high-fiving them. I'd be praising Jesus. I would say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I would not be terrified. And some would suggest that this is an, a sense of awe that they're in the presence of Jesus. But for some reason, this, the word terror and awe don't fit together in my brain. They just don't. There's something going on inside of these guys. There's a storm inside. They can't reconcile inside. This is the way we live. This is what our faith is about. This is who this guy is. This, is, I, th this doesn't make any sense. And this is freaking me out. Is where they were at. And the story ends. The story ends. So what do I do about the storm inside of me? If Jesus may calm the storm outside of me, what do I do about that storm inside of me? I want to go to another passage of Scripture that I think gives us a little direction on this, and it's Paul's writing in the book, his letter to the church in Corinth. Paul says this, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. We don't know what it is. We have no idea. Some would suggest it's a physical malady. Some would suggest it's something that related to the, the fact that he had a relationship that maybe that didn't work. We don't know what the it is. All we know is Paul had something going on inside of him that he pleaded with God. That's desperate calls. That's not, hey God, if you get around to it, it'd be kind of nice if this is God, please. I don't know how I'm going to survive if you don't do something. Three times, over and over and over again. Metaphor for that. Three times I pleaded with God. And what did God do? God said to me, I'm not taking it away. I'm not going to take care of the storm in your life. But I'm going to offer you something different. And I would suggest that can calm the storm inside. Look at what he says. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace is unmerited favor. It's what I get that I don't deserve. He said, I'm going to give you something you don't do anything to deserve or earn, and it's sufficient. It's going to be exactly what you need. Exactly what you need. And this is how it comes to you. My power, the same power that calmed the storm, same power, it's perfected or it shows up or it's complete in your weakness. It shows up. It's complete in your weakness. I don't like that. I want to eliminate my weakness. I want to hide my weakness. I want to cover it up. I don't want anybody to admit it, even if I know it's to be true. I want to fix my weakness. I don't want to talk about my weakness. But God says, you want my power? You've got to be honest about your weakness. I just want things to be squeaky clean. I don't want things to be a mess. My weakness shows that I'm a mess, that I don't have it all put together. And God says this. He says, I want things to be a mess. I want you to admit that you're a mess because it's only when you're a mess that I'm able to show up. It's only when you're a mess that I can calm the storm inside of you. He 
goes on to say that I delight in your weakness, in your suffering, and in your struggles. This goes so against the way that I think about life. When I'm in a weakness, when I'm in a struggle, I'm holding on. I'm trying to find solutions. I'm trying to find a way out. I'm trying to dam up that water so it doesn't get more inside the kitchen. That's what I'm all about. I'm not all about saying I am weak and I don't know how to fix this and I don't know what I'm going to do. But Paul says, when you admit your weakness, when your son and daughter won't come back to God, that's when my power is going to show up and my grace is going to be there. Paul says that when you admit your weakness, when you're facing a terminal illness or your marriage is struggling, your job is insecure, that's when my power is going to show up and give you what you need to make it. He says when you admit your weakness, when you long for a spouse or long for children or long for your children to come back to you, my grace is going to be what you need. And it's only when I can find my willingness to admit those struggles in the calm of the storm, does God give me something I don't deserve to make it through another day? And so what's the storm around you? Some of you have storms around you. Um, and they're really hard right now. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus can calm that storm around you. He can. But not just the storm that's around you, but what's the storm inside of you? What's churning inside of you? What's leaking out? What's showing up and you're trying to hide it and cover it up? What's coming out and you're like, I don't like that, I don't want that to be true of me, but it's coming out. And that's the storm inside of you. And as you admit and face that storm, can you identify where your weakness, what are you prone to do when that happens? For me, I'm prone to try to solve it, try to take care of myself, try to be self-sufficient, try to not appear as weak. You know, who wants a weak leader? Nobody likes a weak leader. What? You want a what? Strong leader, right? A bold leader, right? Nobody wants a weak leader. He says, when you can admit your weaknesses, that's when God's power shows up in your life. As we close this morning, um, I want to play a song for you. It's a pretty popular song, Eye of the Storm. And, and uh, I, I just want you to sit with this for just a moment. Sit with the storms that are around you. Sit with your own weakness. Because I don't think there's a person in this room that doesn't want God's power to show up in your life. You would not be here if you didn't want that somehow, some way. But it comes in the complete opposite way that we try to do it. Which means stepping back, letting go, having faith that God's going to do something in my life through my weakness, through my struggle, through my storm. Listen to the song. God, we need you. Can't face these storms on our own, but often we try to. Our plans, our strategies, our solutions, our self-loathing. God, we try all kinds of things. And I pray that as we walk out this week, that this would be a day and a week in which 
we let you calm them in us. And that grace that's more sufficient, it's exactly what we need. It reminds us of this love that's unconditional, never changing, never ending. No matter how painful or difficult, no matter how much the mess is our fault or something, we have no control over God. That you love us and you will not leave us alone. That's what you offer. And God, that's what we're grabbing hold of today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been great to have you here with us today. And uh, as we wrap up, uh, I want to ask you to pull out that communication card that Roddy talked about a little bit early. So go ahead and pull that out. Um, and we're going to collect these a little bit differently. So we're going to ask everybody on the far right seat to my right and your left. So starting with Mark right here, reach under your seat there. Don't get your coffee cup, Mark. Reach under and get the black bucket. If, um, so we need everybody in this section, if you're sitting over here, Norm, if you can go down and grab a black bucket underneath that seat and then just start passing it all the way over. So everybody on this side, grab your black bucket, pass them all the way over to the other side. Awesome. Great job, everybody. And when they get over here, just this side, put them right underneath the seat if you're on the last person on the seat. Thanks. I don't know what storm you're in right now. I don't know if it's a storm in you or around you. But Jesus can calm the storm around you, and he can calm the storm in you. And I hope you let him do that this week. Have a great day, everybody. See you next weekend.